The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to another episode of EDU Futures. Today I have Nathan Grawl, the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of Social Sciences at Carleton College, where he served also as Associate Dean from 2009 to 2012. Nathan is a labor economist with particular interest in how family background shapes educational and employment outcomes. Many of his works study whether access to financial resources significantly limit these important measures of success. Nathan's recent publication, which will be the focus of our conversation today, is Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. This is a great piece of work. It examines how recent demographic shifts might affect demand for higher education in the future. Ongoing work examines a wide range of responses taken by colleges and universities that are proactively preparing for demographic change. One of the signs of a good piece of research is that it provokes as many or more questions than it provides answers, and I believe that Nathan's work definitely fits that description. It's a wonderful piece of research, and it's already provoking a lot of conversation among board members, administrators, faculty, and others who are trying to figure out how to prepare for the future. As demographics change, what does that mean for my school? So if you're in that situation or you're just interested in this conversation around demographics and higher education, I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Here we go. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm fascinated with your work, and it's a topic that's obviously timely. It's one that finds its way in the news quite a bit. In fact, I see references to your book and your work in the news as there are concerns and musings about the future of higher education, and we'll definitely get into that today. But I'd love to step back a little bit and learn a little bit more about you and how you got into this particular area of research. So I'm a labor economist by training. Most of my research deals with how family background has something to say about uh, educational and labor market attainment, young people as they grow up. Um, In 2009, I took a little uh, side job in the dean's office. And so for three years, I was uh, an administrator. And as part of that, I participated in a strategic planning exercise. And in the beginning of that strategic planning exercise, uh, our president, Steve Poskanzer, invited some of his staff to kick off the process with some data. And that was the first time uh, in 2009 or 10 that I saw the witchy forecast on the high school graduates. And so I saw a map that showed uh, what we all now are all too aware of, which was a bit of the implosion that's going on demographically in the Northeast. And I remembered thinking, wow, that looks really challenging for higher education. Um, but almost immediately, um, a second thought. I'm not sure what that really has to say for Carleton. Uh, we just serve a small part of the higher education uh, market, of course, as all institutions do. And so it's really easy to imagine that the population is moving one way, but the subpopulation that is our uh, prospective student pool could be going in a different direction. And so that got me thinking about, well, how, how could you uh, better refine uh, those forecasts so that you could understand what it had to say 
for an institution, say, that's a two-year college versus uh, an elite uh, college or university that surely, while we all live in the same market and the witchy data are invaluable in that sense, um, that we might conceive of ourselves being in different sub-markets and that there might be use to thinking about the question in that way. So can you talk about how you approach this study? I mean, where do you begin? You, what questions do you start with and how do you kind of form a, a methodology for exploring answers to that question? Sure. So if we think about um, going to the two-year community college, for instance, uh, versus going to Brown University, we know from uh, Department of Education longitudinal data that the students who are likely to make those different choices look uh, different along a number of demographic markers. So using the 2002 Education Longitudinal Study, which looked at a a uh, sample of sophomores in 2002, high school sophomores, and then traced their uh, behaviors through college graduation onto college attendance, we can fit probability models and find out um, that in some cases, the differences in the probability of attending um, a, an elite uh, college university, for instance, can be as much as 35 or, or more fold difference across different demographic groups. So using that ELS data, we can compute the probability of college going by demographic group, and we can apply those probabilities that are estimated to data from the American Community Survey, which is a large Census Bureau um, population headcount data source in essence. And so from that, we can see how the uh, population demographics are shifting. And then assuming that people continue to engage with higher education in the same way they have in the past, we can project what that means for future demand. And because the education longitudinal study records which institutions students attended, we can estimate different probability models for attending a two-year college versus a four-year college. And then within the four-year sector, we can break it down by U.S. news rankings. And so we can see uh, different patterns um, of projected demand for institutions ranked among the top 50 institutions versus those not ranked among, say, the top 100. So can you talk a little bit more? Part of your approach includes what you refer to as the higher education demand index. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the, the higher education demand index is a projection of the expected number of students who will be bound to college in general or colleges of different types as we go forward in time. Again, just tracing out how uh, the existing makeup of our population is likely to affect those things going forward. So for instance, we can see that in 2008, um, in response to the financial crisis, families uh, stopped having as many kids. The fertility rate declined. And in fact, it's been a decline more or less nonstop ever since. Um, so we know that there are fewer uh, children in recent birth cohorts, and we can trace out not just that there are fewer children, but which subsets of the population are having fewer children. So we can trace out what the implications of that are for these different subparts of the higher education market. And in terms of demand increasing or decreasing uh, of the whole broader conversation around the idea that perhaps people are going to be less likely to go to college um, in the future. How, how do you take that into account in, in a study like this? Yeah, so the, the projections that I'm making are making the assumption uh, that people will continue to go to college at the same rate, uh, at least uh, within a given, a given demographic group. Um, 
And it, it just traces out what would happen given the population compositional changes that are already baked into our population. Um, as I understand your question, you're asking, but what if attitudes toward higher education change? Yes. And of course, in that case, well, that will change the projections. So I think you should view uh, my work not as predictions, but projections. Um, it's just saying, let's trace out the, the status quo and how that plays out. And then we want to layer on top of that our understanding about things like um, how might the addition of online options change the landscape? Or what do we make of people's response to rising costs of higher ed? And of course, if people decide that they are not as inclined to get a, a four-year degree, for instance, then you'd have to view my projections as an upper bound and you'd want to make adjustments accordingly. So for example, we saw something importantly like that happen in the 80s. Um, there had been a decline in the number of kids. There was a lot of conversation in the 70s about how we could anticipate fewer people of traditional age going to college in the 80s. Um, but in fact, what happened was there was a dramatic increase in the demand. That was because we saw a huge increase in the returns to education. And as a result, uh, everybody wanted to get a college degree in order to tap into those higher labor market returns. So that's an example of how projections like the ones I'm doing um, can break down because there are different uh, and changing attitudes toward higher education over time. So this is venturing a little bit more into the realm of editorial, but as I have conversations with people in higher education, whether they're from, from more open access colleges and universities, private and public, or whether they're more, more elite um, or selective, highly selective institutions, it seems to me that it's quite common. Not, not, there are certainly people who are concerned now. I think the, the word has gotten out and people are starting to acknowledge this in some ways. But it's, it's quite common as well for people to hear something like this and somehow convince themselves that they're the exception, that their yeah. institution is going to somehow not be insulated from this impact. And I'm assuming you've come into that a little bit as you've talked about your work with different groups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I see kind of two different versions of that. One sense of insulation is things are just fine for me. Um, so at uh, one conference where the National Clearinghouse folks were presenting similar data, there was a conversation session af afterwards. And the first three people to speak all said versions of, boy, this looks really grim. On the other hand, my school is going to be just fine because the, our feeder schools are projecting growth for their students. And I thought, wow, that seems really naive. I mean, let's assume that this is true. So that just means that the rest of higher ed is going to be in a tougher spot because on average, things are headed in a tough direction. But you're saying your schools are strong, so other schools must be weaker. And you think that your competitors, who are apparently dependent on this shrinking pool, are just going to take it as you thrive and, and they shrink. That doesn't seem likely. Um, I think we should instead expect that if you're in a market where feeder schools are growing, you can expect, expect increased competition. In fact, we see that in Houston, for instance, where we see geographic growth in the Southwest. And of course, we've got tons of recruitment going on in Texas uh, that places like the University of Houston are feeling acutely uh, because there's just more competition coming for, for those growth markets. The other place I see this mentality of, oh, it'll just be fine is, okay, maybe my feeder schools are shrinking, but I'm sure we can just um, change our recruitment tactics and we'll out-recruit the competition. This may be true, um, but it can't be true for all of us by definition, right? We can't all out-compete each other. And so it makes me a little anxious that people are over-reliant on the strategy of, in essence, I'm just going to recruit my way out of this. Um, that, that's got to be a strategy that only some of us are able to succeed with, unless something 
outside of higher ed changes like we get a massive increase in the returns to higher education. Now, of course, that, that could change that, that could change the, the perspective student pool, but that doesn't seem super likely. So it seems like it's an overly optimistic view to just say we're going to just out-recruit the competition. I'm curious if you've seen, as you've talked to different audiences, if you have seen um, responses that you consider to be um, sort of wiser, I guess, <laughs> representing a little more wisdom. I mean, what, what would you hope would be the response of a higher education institution when they're reading about and hearing about these kind of data? Yeah, I, I see a lot of actually constructive response. Um, so certainly recruitment can be part of it. We just have to recognize the unpleasant arithmetic of it all. If we can increase access, that would help. I don't think that's going to be the only solution, but certainly uh, there are a lot of schools that are experimenting with um, access initiatives um, and having some success. But I think we have to go beyond the admissions office and we start thinking about retention, for instance. We don't need to recruit as many students if we would just retain the students that we've already recruited. Um, nationally, retention rates remain alarmingly low. Um, it's not efficient for institutions, and it's certainly not healthy for the students who are brought into institutions and then and then have to leave in a disruptive way. So if we could address retention, so for instance, uh, Rutgers is um, piloting this, uh, this year a, an experiment with their student work program where it's an explicitly a mentorship relationship. They've identified uh, low-income first-generation students uh, who they're targeting with um, some earmarked student work positions where student work supervisors have uh, been trained to, about the resources on the campus and how to be a mentor. And their idea is to try to make student work uh, a point of connection between the student and the campus so that they can better support those students. Another example is St. Cloud State University in my home state of Minnesota, which has been working on identifying those students who might be academically strong, uh, be average or better in their first term, but don't have a strong sense of belonging. And because of that, they're at risk for uh, attrition. And so they're giving, they've developed and are now implementing a 10 question survey for all incoming first year students in the first couple weeks of the term. And they are quickly identifying the students who are at risk and then making that information available to faculty and residential life staff so that people on campus can reach out to those students and try to make better connections, um, keep them connected. We see people who are engaged in program reform, trying to draw better connections between um, the classroom work and relevance to life after college. This potentially benefits both recruitment and retention. Uh, we see this in the form of, for instance, computer science plus X degrees, uh, Lewis University is an example of this, where we might have computer science and anthropology or computer science and music, trying to uh, connect students better to the institution with programming reform. So there are a lot of people who are doing um, a lot of interesting work, I think, to try to make our institutions stronger so that we're better able to navigate this. Of course, you know, some of the solutions have to be about um, smart reprioritization of resources. And there's that work going on, too, recognizing that we might not be able to avoid all of the decline that's coming. Right. Over the years, I have worked with lots of market firms to do market research for new programs and initiatives. I think I've been part of, to some degree or, or another, the launch of almost, I think, 19 degree programs. Wow. And I would often work with different market research firms, and they were always quite uncomfortable doing what I wanted them to do. Because what they were comfortable doing was they would, they would do the research for how many uh, high school graduates are expressing interest in a particular major, but then what they would not, or 
not it's not an end or they would do the work on the labor side and look at the demand of jobs in a particular area but it was the rare uh, company that was willing to research company firm that was willing to actually put those together and make some some projections but i'm wondering if you are seeing as you're kind of connecting with people around your work if you're seeing some promising models of uh, new program initiatives that align with both the demand or the demand of the workforce, but also a comparable demand in terms of, of prospective students who would like to major in an area that would be a pathway to a certain job. So I, I think we are. I, I think you know your point about how many new programs there are is is apt. Um, I saw a recent study that. Uh, saw a 20% increase if if in this was iPads data analysis a 20% increase in the number of degree programs over the last 15 years or so so clearly we're adding programs um, not all of those can be super well thought out um, kind of by definition um, you know I think that what the what the Lewis University folks and this is also going on at the University of Illinois are doing with those computer science plus X degrees is trying to do that I, I think there are a lot of students we we see the movement of uh, students out of humanities toward computer science and, and digital technologies. And so part of what they're doing there is a reflection of the student demand side to bring more um, computer science skills and uh, digital technology into fields that have traditionally not been super connected to that area. And at the same time, it's also an acknowledgement that those skills are valued by the workforce. You can also look at Stanford, which um, initiated a similar set of programs in 2014, and then five years later, they discontinued them. And at least by their student newspaper's account, a lot of the reason for the discontinuation was that the interdisciplinary program was not really well supported. Um, students were left on their own, more or less, to find the connections between the two fields. I think there's an awful lot of program generation that sadly fits that goal. The, the conception might be reasonably good, but we have to decide if we're really committed. And if you're not committed to actually doing the hard work of implementation, um, the whole thing can kind of just fall away as, as the lack of investment eventually catches up with it. And of course, this is a movement that's happened that goes back decades, that there have, have been colleges that have chosen to diversify their target audience in terms of recruiting adult learners and other populations beyond the uh, sort of traditional age, 18 year old coming out of high school. And um, has, how has that sort of fit into your conversations and explorations as a result of this research? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I think you can think of it as an extension of the access agenda. We're looking for people who are not being well served by higher ed. Um, certainly in the 1970s and 80s, part of the way that colleges prepared for the downturn in the number of young people was to expand adult learner options. And um, we have seen a dramatic increase in adult learner enrollments ever since. And I do hear in a large number of institutions that are looking at exactly that in light of the current decline in fertility. Um, I talked, for instance, to Pam Ettinger, who is president of Bunker Hill Community College, and she talked about a similar experience she had as an administrator with California community colleges, where declining enrollments led to um, decrease in, the, in budget allocations, and they needed to uh, find another source of demand. And so they sought out adult learners. But she said what she learned from that experience was it's often easy to initially recruit the adult learner. Um, but if it's going to be sustainable, you have to actually think about changing who you are. Um, we can't just remain the same ourselves. 
invite a very different group of students to campus and say, but I'm sure you're just going to you know, adapt to uh, what we've always been doing. And a lot of institutions, uh, to your institutions included, uh, were built around the four-year college model. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing as, as uh, institutions really grapple with what it means to become an adult learner-serving institution, uh, an increased willingness to re-examine all sorts of assumptions. So, you know, for instance, Dr. Edinger, in the case of Bunker Hill Community College, gave one example that I think is, you know, it's only one of many things, but it really drives home the point. She said, you know, we're, we're asking, why does it take two days on campus physically before you can register for classes here? Um, that might work for an 18-year-old, but if you have an adult learner who has a job and a family, um, why are we making it so hard to collect that tuition check? Now, no, I won't take your check until you come back to campus for yet another day of orientation. And so they're re-examining what goes on in the orientation, what has to be done on campus, what can be done off campus. Um, another example would be um, Roscatel, the chancellor of the New Hampshire Community Colleges, has uh, been working with his schools to offer more eight-week programs rather than 16. So students uh, traditionally would be taking two courses over the 16-week term, um, and adult learners report that it's easier to have one course for eight weeks rather than two courses for 16, because the two courses at a time, of course, means similarly timed midterms and certainly similarly timed final exams. And that's very difficult for an adult learner who has other commitments. Um, they would rather be able to just focus on one course at a time. Um, over the 16 weeks, they get the same two courses done, but they don't have the extra ball in the air, which for some who have family and work commitments can just be too much. So rethinking how we do things is certainly necessary. It's not enough to simply identify another market. I have done a lot of work over the years consulting and advising for schools grappling with that. Everything from uh, a lot of schools, for example, that wanted to get into the online space and they had traditionally served in a very legacy format serving traditional residential undergraduate uh, students. And all of a sudden they found themselves baffled by challenges like um, a adult online student would call an office and ask for help and the office would say, would say, sure, just come on over and we'll work through that. Of course, the person lives 500 miles away. <laughs> um, or the hours being organized yeah. mostly during the daytime, so not having evening or weekend hours or demanding that people have meetings with real-time live sessions at times when the kids are being dropped off from school and they're coming home and uh, you know, all sorts of, of interesting factors that... that um, we're just they just hadn't taken the time yet to think about the the lives and the needs and the distinctions of this different population. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think when I think about the you know in all of these different dimensions of expanding access, often we as faculty who have been on campus for a while experience this as, oh, so you're telling me that these students bring new challenges and I need to address them. And the answer is in part yes. Uh, but the other truth is that these student groups bring new assets. And so the adult learner, for instance, brings a ton of uh, work experience. It's not just about transforming how I teach in order to accommodate what might be some of the new challenges. It's also transforming how I teach so that I can tap into what are new assets in the classroom. So it's, it's both and. There, there are upsides. But, but on both sides of the equation, I can't just continue doing what I've been doing and expect to get the most out of um, this new audience. So I'm wondering, I don't know if you could speak to this or not, if it's beyond the scope of what you're comfortable speaking about. So you started doing this work as part of your own college's questions about its future. 
And I'm, I'm just curious if there's anything you can share about how your work has informed your own school's thinking and preparing for the future. Yeah, so for better or worse, um, like I said, my work came out of a strategic plan. So the, the results of the strategic plan uh, happened before um, I finished my work. But it was nice to see that what came out of that plan did make sense for what we were seeing. So for instance, um, if you look at the patterns of demand for um, highly selective colleges, uh, it looks like we can expect more growth in the Southwest as in Texas um, and in the Pacific Northwest. And those were places where we were already making some moves. So for instance, we participate in the Posse program and where in the past we had drawn our Posse students from Chicago, we had decided that we were going to shift toward the Houston, Texas market so that we could expand a toehold there and increase uh, brand recognition in that important growing market. So um, it's generally been been good to see there. I, I think, you know, Carlton has had a long tradition of high retention and, and strong attention to student learning. A lot of what I've been rethinking in my own teaching is just the necessity to continually rededicate to that outcome. As much as Carlton can boast of some great outcomes for our graduates, we also can boast a very high comprehensive fee. Um, I guess that can work out if you if you make good on the promise. But as as I see the challenges that higher ed faces and I see the increased competition, which is inevitably going to follow, it makes me just remember that I need to make good on that. Every single interaction with every single student um, is either an opportunity to draw them closer to their goals and closer to the institution, or it's an opportunity to repel them. And, you know, given the price point that we're charging and the competition that's out there, you know, every day is is another opportunity to take a student-centered approach or not. Great. And for those who don't know, by the way, you made a reference to the Posse program. If you could just explain just quickly for listeners what that is. Yeah. So the Posse program is like a number of initiatives that are ongoing right now in the nation, uh, a way to acknowledge that students are more than just their board scores. And so the Posse, um, I think it's foundation, um, identify students who um, might not have the strongest records on paper, but have other parts of their experience history that suggest that they would be strong students at selective schools. And then the institution commits to uh, recruiting a group of them, typically about a dozen, um, who come and form a, a group. And so there's a cohort aspect of it. They all have the same advisor and there's an in- intensive um, faculty advising and mentoring component built into the program. And the idea is that if we bring such students to campus as a group rather than as individuals, um, when they're on campus um, and they run into troubles, as all students will in their experiences, they have a network of students with whom they they feel close and and can share and commiserate and and bounce back. Um, So, you know, the the Posse program um, has centers around the country. And so, you know, we'd originally been drawing our posse from uh, the Chicago land area. And, you know, instead we were shifting to drawing students from the, from the Houston area. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, something that you brought up just briefly about sort of selective colleges, and you mentioned in the book that you expect selective colleges to be somewhat insulated from this compared to, to others. And so I don't know if you could speak into a little bit, who are the, uh, who are the potential winners and losers? Uh, in in what seems to be playing out, if things play out as your data would indicate. 
Sure. So the, the projections suggest that while demand for college in general is going to fall, in other words, that the witchy data really is necessary for higher education to confront for the most part. If we look at those schools that are among the top 50 universities and top 50 colleges, uh, we might expect the number of prospective students to increase. So first, why is that? Um, there are two trends that lean in that direction. One is the success of higher education. Educating more parents means that the next generation of parents is likely to have, um, well, will have, um, more bachelor's degrees represented. And so we're going to have more students who come to the college decision with parents who have bachelor's degrees. And those uh, students are more likely to choose a four-year college in general and selective four-year colleges in particular. The second force is that the Asian American population is growing. It's the fastest growing ethnic group in the country. And that racial subgroup um, has a strong affinity for four-year college and selective four-year college in particular. And so those two demographic forces suggest that we might expect an expanding market at the top. Um, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that that means that the top is exactly insulated. I think it might help us to understand, for instance, how it can be that Ann Arbor, Michigan, Ann Arbor, um, Princeton, and Yale have recently announced that they're increasing their classes by about 10 to 20 percent. Um, you know, it, okay, they have deep pools, so they could just be going deeper into the application pool. But I think we can also understand it as a response to a rising tide where they have more students who are interested in, in an education like that. But I say that it's not going to entirely insulate us because, you know, I think about Carleton, for instance, and we have um, peers that are near peers. And then we have uh, a heavy crossover with schools that might be slightly less selective than we are. And if those schools are experiencing intense uh, enrollment pressure, I anticipate that they're going to compete harder. They're going to compete harder with uh, merit-based aid, for instance. They're going to compete harder with programmatic change. And whatever the stories Carleton was telling when recruiting students in the past, we are going to have to um, come up with new stories to tell, new narratives to justify the difference in the cost between a Carleton education and what might be a, a much more competitive market. And so there is some insulation at the top, but um, at the same time, we all are in a common higher ed market and declining numbers of young people isn't going to be good for, for any of us you know, at some level. Of course, a sign of a good study is that it sometimes provokes more questions than it gives answers. And I think your work has done that in many ways. I'm wondering if there are any unanswered questions that you hope to explore in the future. Where, where's your, uh, are you going to continue this line of research? Um, where would you like to go with this? So right now I'm, I'm working on um, a project that collects stories from campuses that are proactively trying to engage uh, demographic change in one way or another. Um, everything from, yes, recruit, recruiting differently, to retention initiatives, to change in programs. Some institutions are trying to grow. Um, with increased competition, they're seeing net fee income per student fall. And so their strategy is to try to grow. Um, so that, you know, that can't work for everybody, but it works for some. And then also, finally, there are opportunities for us to collaborate. The declining number of young people is going to push us into a more competitive relationship with one another. But we shouldn't forget that um, a lot of issues like higher ed financing, um, international student regulation, a lot of these issues, we share a common interest. And so there are opportunities to collaborate, transfer articulation agreements. There are places where we can do better working together. So my next project is hoping to collect these stories with an eye toward provoking conversations on campuses that want to um, begin their own proactive response to demographic change. Well, I wish you the best in your provocative work. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.